On January 1st, every year, we celebrate this great solemnity called, the Mary, called Mary, the Mother of God, which the, this solemnity used to actually be celebrated in October, and this being the eighth day since Christmas, this used to be uh, actually called the Circumcision of Jesus, and also the, the Feast of the Most Holy Name of Jesus. The Feast of the Most Holy Name has been moved to January 3rd, and we just kind of did away with the term, the Circumcision of Jesus, for whatever reason. But this, this feast is important, and the reason that it is important because uh, giving the title of Mary, the Mother of God, to Mary actually ties into who Jesus is. And so this title given to Mary dates all the way back to the Council of Ephesus in 431. And the reason that it was given to Mary at this council was because at the time there was a bishop named Nestorius. Nestorius was bishop of Constantinople who was teaching error which we know to be error today. And so they called the council to correct the, correct the error that was being taught and to come to the understanding of the dogma that we believe about who Jesus is today. And so what Nestorius taught was that Jesus was God, that Jesus was God-inspired, but not God-made man. And so what the council declared was that uh, the decree Jesus was one person and not two separate persons, yet he, possess, he possesses both a human and a divine nature. So what Nestorius taught was that Jesus was just God-inspired, but he was not actually God, whereas what we actually believe as Catholics is that he is God and he is man, and we call that union of God and man in the person of Jesus the hypostatic union. And so because we believe this about Jesus, then it also then logically falls into, okay, who do we believe Mary to be? And so the title of Mary, Theotokos, which means God-bearer, or Mary, the mother of God, the one who gave birth to God, was then given to Mary as well. And so all of this falls in line into our tradition and to our dogmas of what we believe about Jesus, and thus from what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about Mary as well. Now, we don't want to confuse this to mean that Mary is the source of the divinity of Jesus or that Mary is God herself. That's not what we are saying by calling Mary the mother of God. If we were to say that, we would be incorrect, but also we realize that there are people who accuse Catholics of actually believing these very, th- these very things, but that's not what we believe. What we do believe is that Mary is the source of the humanity of Jesus, and that God is the source of his divinity. He is the one person, yet possessing two natures, human and divine. And this is what we, what we call the hypostatic union, which is a theological term in order to help us to define the reality of who Jesus is. And so the implications of what we believe about Jesus actually reach far out, because if we don't get it right about who Jesus is, then a lot of our other theology begins to fall short. And so it's necessary that we hold on to these facts and these dogmas of our faith. The ancient ecumenical, ecumenical councils, like the Council of Ephesus, keep Christianity united in one faith. And so we have these councils that have happened throughout history that have been, that have been um, called upon in order to correct errors that were being taught in the church, except for the Second Vatican Council, which was called for pastoral reasons. And that was, that was one of the ones that, uh, that was called for different reasons.
Interestingly enough, our readings today allow us to focus on names, specifically the name of God and the name of Jesus, and the importance of what it means to know a name. Because the naming of a child in the Jewish tradition happened on the eighth day, we have the readings that we have today, and thus we can also Thus, we can also call this the solemnity of Mary, the mother of God, but also the naming of Jesus as well. So when we go, when we go all the way back to the Garden of, Garden of Eden, we already see the importance of the naming of people. When God creates Adam from the dust of the earth, he calls him Adam because Adam means from the earth. But then when Eve is created, Eve is not called from the earth because she was not created from the earth. She was created from the side of Adam. And Eve literally means the mother of all the living. And she is named this because she is taken from the side of Adam. What's interesting, though, is before before God creates Eve, God brings all of the animals before Adam in order for him to name them, we hear in the book of Genesis. And this naming of all of the animals by Adam shows a dominion that he has over the animals and authority that he has over the animals. But it's also showing Adam that he is different than all of the animals as well, that he is created different than all of them, and that God has a different purpose for him than he does for all of the animals. So if we use this logic about Adam naming the animals that he has dominion and authority over them, we also realize that by God naming Adam and Eve, he has a dominion over them, and he has an authority over them as well. We also see God naming different people throughout throughout the scriptures also. Like, for instance, when we go to Abram. Abram was this great patriarch in the Old Testament uh, whose name was eventually changed to Abraham. God comes in and makes a covenant with Abram, and when he makes that covenant with Abram, he changes his name to Abraham. And that covenant that he makes with Abraham, one of the parts of the, it's a threefold covenant, one of those parts of the covenant is that he's going to be a great nation And that, by changing his name to Abraham, it literally means the father of all the nations. But we also know that Abraham has no children. He has a child by the servant girl Hagar, but he still doesn't have a child by his own wife through which the covenant is going to pass. Eventually, he is blessed with a child, but he only has one child. So if you can imagine Abraham, when he goes and introduces himself to people, he says, yeah, my name is Abraham. It means the father of many nations. How ironic it is that he has one child, and people in the background are probably snickering at him, thinking, how can he be the father of many nations with one child? But it is still through Abraham that God desires to build his covenant. We know that Isaac then has two children, Jacob and Esau. We know that the line passes from Isaac into Jacob, And Jacob has 12 sons, so that the covenant and the many nations begins to grow. That God's promise then begins to be fulfilled through Abraham, through Isaac, and through Jacob. But we also know that Jacob's name has changed also. Jacob leaves Esau. He leaves Esau behind. He goes and forms uh, his own nation. He He goes and gets married. He has his 12 sons. And Jacob's name is also changed. Because God is passing his line and his covenant through Jacob into the nation of Israel. And that nation of Israel is actually the name that Jacob's name is changed to. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. So all of the 12 sons are the sons of Israel. 
in which they established the nation of Israel through those 12 tribes, through those 12 sons of, of Jacob. When we fast forward all the way into the New Testament, we fast forward to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Remember the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah is in the temple offering the annual sacrifice that he is called upon to do as high priest. He goes into the temple to offer that sacrifice. The angel appears to him, says, you're going to have a child. Zechariah kind of laughs. He said, me and my wife, we are old. There's no way this is going to happen. And the angel says, I promise you that it will. And to show a sign this, you will be made mute. Zechariah in his disbelief is made mute. He comes out of the temple And when he comes out of the temple, he's supposed to give the blessing, the blessing upon all of the people. This sacrifice that Zechariah is giving is the once-a-year sacrifice. It's one of the pilgrimage feasts of the Israelite people where all of the faithful Jews travel to Jerusalem, travel to the temple in order to receive the blessing from God. And the very blessing from God that they are to receive is actually the blessing that we read about in the book of Numbers today. The book of Numbers reveals to us the, the threefold blessing of God where God's name The name of Yahweh is called upon three different times in order to bless the people. Now the amazing thing about that calling upon the Lord's name is that it is the name that has been revealed to Moses. When Moses is on Mount Sinai, he sees the burning bush. Moses asks God, he says, well, who, who are you that I can tell the people of Israel that you are their God? And he says, I am who am, or Yahweh. And so the people of Israel reverenced the name of God so much that they never said the name. They never said the name Yahweh, except when they pronounced the blessing upon all of the people, when they built the temple and had the temple, and they used that name to bless the people from the book of Numbers, like Zechariah was meant to do when he comes out of the temple after offering the sacrifice. But this name of God is reverenced. And when, it's, when it is reverenced, what happens when they pass on the tradition of the scriptures to their descendants, they don't actually write the name of Yahweh in their Bibles out of strict reverence to his name. They use the term Adonai rather than Yahweh in order to reverence that name. And the reason I keep bringing that up, that reverence, that name, is because it is by that name that we are saved, but then God gives another name by which we are saved. It is the name of Jesus, such that when Mary, when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary, asks her to be the mother of Jesus, appears to, G, appears to Joseph, Joseph in the dream, says, you will name him Jesus. He thus is named Jesus, and that name Jesus means literally God saves. And so it's through the name of Jesus that we are saved. The Hebrew name is actually pronounced Yeshua, which if we were to translate literally would be Joshua. We know a Joshua in the Old Covenant, the Joshua that led the people out of the wilderness into the freedom of the promised land. The name of Jesus, which is God saves, leads us out of our slavery to sin, out of the wilderness of sin, into the freedom of God's people. And by what way are we freed from our sins? In what way do we live in that freedom? But through the sacrament of baptism. It is by the sacrament of baptism that we are freed from our sins to live in that freedom that God desires for us, for which God saves us. Jesus saves us. And when we are baptized, our names are written in eternity. Our names become holy to God. 
we hear in the Catechism of the Catholic Church in paragraph 2158. God calls each one by name. Everyone's name is sacred. The name is the icon of the person. It demands respect as a sign of the dignity of the one who bears it. The name one receives is a name for eternity. In the kingdom, the mysterious and unique character of each person marked with God's name will shine forth in splendor. Our names are written in eternity such that God knows us by that name. Now, the interesting thing about that is parents, you have the duty to name your child. But this is why the Catholic faith has always said it's important that we name children with Christian names as that name is written in eternity. And thus we should never name a child something that is contrary to the Christian faith. It'd be kind of, a, it'd be kind of a going against everything that God believes us to be if we name them something contrary to the Christian faith. But because we are baptized, that name is written into eternity. And I love that phrase that it becomes an icon of the person. Remember, the naming has a dominion and authority over that person. So a parent has a certain dominion and authority over their child. But when we have them baptized, thus they become children of God. And God then has a dominion and authority over them as well. And there's kind of this going back and forth between our names being written in eternity, but also the name of Jesus is written on our hearts when we are baptized. Because we become temples of the Holy Spirit and Jesus' name is written on our hearts. Because Jesus' name is holy, because it is the name revealed to us by God, it is necessary for us to abide by the second commandment, to never to take that name in vain. Catechism 2142 20, says, The second commandment prescribes respect for the Lord's name. Like the first commandment, it belongs to the virtue of religion, And more particularly, it governs our use of speech in sacred matters. 2143, among all the words of Revelation, there is one which is unique, the revealed name of God. God confines his name to those who believe in him. He reveals himself to them in his personal mystery. The gift of a name belongs to the order of trust and intimacy. The Lord's name is holy. For this reason, man must not abuse it. He must keep it in mind in silent, loving adoration. He will not introduce it into his own speech except to bless, praise, and glorify it. It is a mortal sin for us to use the name of Jesus Christ irreverently and as a swear word especially. The sin that we call that is actually blasphemy. To use the name of Jesus in an irreverent and an impious way. The, the catechism goes on in 2146. The second commandment forbids the abuse of God's name. Every improper use of the names of God, Jesus Christ, but also the Virgin Mary and of all the saints. This is a sin that we need to root out of our lives immediately if it is a problem for us. Because of the seriousness of the sin. Because it is a mortal sin, it will keep us out of eternal life. We will be damned to hell if we use the name of God in an impious, in an impious way. 
The Catechism continues in 2147. Promises made to others in God's name engage the divine honor, fidelity, truthfulness, and authority. They must be respected in, in justice. To be unfaithful to them is to misuse God's name and in some way to make God out to be a liar. Blasphemy is directly opposed to the second commandment. It consists in uttering against God inwardly or outwardly words of hatred, reproach, or defiance in speaking ill of God, in failing in respect toward him in one's speech, in misusing God's name. St. James condemns those who blaspheme in that honorable name of Jesus by which you are called. The prohibition of blasphemy extends to language against Christ's church, the saints, and sacred things. It is also blasphemous to make use of God's name to cover up criminal practices, to reduce people's to servitude, to torture persons, or put them to death. The misuse of God's name to commit a crime can provoke others to repudiate religion. Blasphemy is contrary to the respect due to God and his holy name. It is in itself a grave sin. So today on this feast of the solemnity of, the Mary, of Mary, the mother of God, we celebrate her solemnity, but we also celebrate the naming of Jesus and the name by which we are saved, which is the name of Jesus. And we must remember to keep out of reverence, out of respect, out of honor, the name of Jesus Christ. To never use it irreverently, to never abuse it, to never use it in a damning way. And so we must root that out of our sin, out of our lives immediately. In this new year, let us call upon our Blessed Mother. Let us call upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as Mary kept all these things in her heart, we hear about in our gospel today. May we keep the name of the Lord in our hearts in a reverent way. And that we may make him known to all of them that we encounter every single day. That we may bring the world to know Christ by the way that we live by the way that we act, by the way that we think, and by the way that we speak. Because our names are written in eternity. And as our names are written in eternity, may we go to that place that God is calling us to be with him for eternal life.